Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. Well, we are in the second Sunday after the Epiphany. And so I am going to read this morning's passage, and then I'll just have a brief prayer, and then we will discuss this morning's passage. All right, so uh, the passage I chose from the lectionary was 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. Should be on the screen for you. Here we go. It reads, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, And the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus. For in every way you have been enriched in him, in speech and knowledge of every kind, just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end, so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By him you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. I'm going to read an opening prayer. Uh, It should be on the screen as well. It's from uh, one of the lectionaries. Would you pray with me? Holy God. You gather the whole universe into your radiant presence and continually reveal your Son as our Savior. Bring healing to all wounds, make whole all that is broken, speak truth to all illusion, and shed light in every darkness, that all creation will see your glory and know your Christ. Amen. Okay, so we are in uh, 1 Corinthians. We call it 1 Corinthians, but... If you're familiar with the text at all, it is not the first letter to the Corinthians from Paul. Uh, There actually have been a few, and so we will touch base on that. But just to give us some context before we walk through the opening verses of the letter. So Corinth is the capital of a province, sorry, uh, of Achaia. And uh, this, this province, or Corinth, this capital was destroyed in about the middle of the second century BCE. Uh, Julius Caesar, though, about 100 years later, rebuilt it, and it became a Roman colony. And so it's kind of got this mixed culture where it's a destroyed city of a Greek culture, mixed in, and now Rome has taken over. It's rebuilding. It's blended with Greek and Roman culture. Uh, I can show you a couple slides here of pictures and stuff just so we get an idea. Uh, Here's Paul's second missionary journey from as far as we can tell based on the book of Acts. 
Uh, and so Paul did uh, a few missionary journeys. This is the second one, and he would always go back, go back, uh, to, down here to the bottom right, Jerusalem and uh, Antioch is up here. That is the main church that sent him and Barnabas out just northwest Syria over there. And so uh, if you go all the way over here on the left by Achaia, that's where Corinth is. And if you see it drawn out, let's go to the next map of the Roman Empire in this world. Corinth is right there in the middle, just to the right of the boot and the football being cooked, uh, kicked, Italy, if you learn that. It's right there. It's a little hard to see. But so this is right in the center of the Roman Empire. It's kind of this pivotal uh, port and area, this city that people would have to, uh, in order to go all the way east, they would actually, instead of sailing around the peninsula, they would pick up their boats and walk them for six miles or so, that's about the distance of the peninsula, and they would take a few days' journey and carry their, if it was a small enough boat, uh, their crew would labor through there rather than going around the sea. Um, but yeah, so this is where Paul is. Now, Paul's goal is to get to the middle of Italy there. Rome is where the center is, if we can see that. And then let's go on to the next picture. And then here's Corinth. Here is the hub. Here's kind of what's going on. Uh, there's a couple, there's a few different temples to a few different beings or, or ideas of gods that they are worshiping. There's the theater where they would gather for various sorts of talks. The, the Bema or the Bema in the center up in the top left is still around in modern day. Uh, and as is some of the pillars of the Temple of Apollo, which you can see in the next photo, there's a few pillars still around. There are still some remains from a couple thousand years ago, which is pretty cool. But it's a fairly big city back then. It's about 80,000 people uh, with about 20,000 more in the hills. Um, it's right at the, the foot of, a, of the water. It's at the foot of a, of a mountain. And so it's a pretty unique area. Paul planted this, based on Acts 18, right around 51. Uh, we know this in particular because it's one of the few uh, inscriptions that we have that sort of a lot of our dating is based around this which is kind of cool. Most of what we think of Paul's timing is based around this. There's actually, I didn't put it up there, but there's an, an inscription that is available that we've discovered, and um, not, not we, archaeologists, uh, that we've discovered, though, and uh, it, it in, indicates the same name. that uh, His name is Gallio. Now, Paul spent uh, about a year and a half here. This is a pretty long stay, uh, so he was pretty close with these people. He established house churches, and we know he took at least a couple other trips to Corinth. Uh, we know that in particular just from a, we have First and Second Corinthians if you're familiar with the New Testament scriptures. But we know there's probably at least two other letters. Uh, and here's how we know. Paul wrote, if you look at First Corinthians 5.9, Paul mentions that, as I wrote to you before, so there is a real First Corinthians, we just kind of labeled it that. Uh, it's kind of funny when you take a step back and you're like, oh, Paul didn't like write this and be like, call this one Corinthians. Like, we did that, year, like, centuries later. Um, and then centuries later, we discovered, and it, and it hit us, oh, there's another letter. We just don't have it. Then there's 1 Corinthians. We know there's also, based on 2 Corinthians 2, there seems to be at least a third letter. And then there's our 2 Corinthians. There could be more, but yes. Uh, we know there has been uh, much correspondence, though, both ways. So Paul says that they've written to him in chapter 7 of this letter, and it sounds like 
uh, just in verse 11, there's a gal named Chloe, and uh, she, he refers to them as Chloe's people. That seems to indicate that she's the leader of a house church, one of the churches he planted, uh, and she sent a report to Paul. And so Paul is answering a lot of her grievances and a lot of her leadership team's grievances that have been uh, shared with him. And this could have been through Timothy and Titus, but it seems like towards the end of 1 Corinthians, there's a few other people that are involved, her core team. The other couple things. There's a guy named Apollos that gets referenced. And the reason why I'm giving you this background is because over the next couple weeks, we'll, we'll do a couple weeks in the first couple chapters of 1 Corinthians with the lectionary. So Apollos visited them and has kind of become a source of strife. may not be intentional on his part, but it has become this dividing factor of I like this pastor, I like this pastor, I like this pastor type of thing. Uh, we also think that Peter visited them as well, hence they know Cephas, it says in chapter 1, and the only real reason they should know Cephas is because he visited them, and it seems like Paul knew that. Uh, we also know that between First and Second Corinthians, Paul visited them again, although in Second Corinthians he says, that again was a painful visit, and I kind of am not sure if I want to do this again. So what's the point of this letter? Well, it's to, to answer a lot of those issues, a lot of those grievances, those problems that likely came with Chloe and maybe, in, maybe even via Timothy and Titus. Now, this is one of his longest letters, and he's addressing quite a few problems. There's ancient views of marriage, there's interesting problems, meat markets, uh, baptisms of the dead. Until I came here, I, I thought uh, the head coverings one what was I thought was uh, an ancient uh, matter, but now I'm like, oh, head coverings is a is actually a, a Western uh, conversation. And so he deals with head coverings. He talks about visions of a third heaven. He's he's dealing with all these different matters that they are working through. But in particular, there's much sexual immorality. Their suspicions of Paul, they're questioning his validity as an apostle, and there's questions of whether or not the resurrection is real, whether or not uh, we will have life after death. Now, there's divisions definitely along socioeconomic lines. This is kind of what the head coverings matter is and communion, uh, and we could talk about that later if you'd like, but that's basically what that has been attributed to. There is a socioeconomic division in regards to that matter, and same with communion, that the wealthy are eating very uh, delicious and full meals while the impoverished in the church are not getting to do so, and so Paul addresses that as to how to conduct a communal meal in the local church. So, it's interesting to note, though, there's about a dozen things that Paul's addressing, only one of them is about like a misunderstanding of a belief, a theological position. Almost everything has to do with their behavior, their actions, their attitude that is uh, fleshing out in their actions. Overall, it seems like Paul is confronting the, uh, confronting the church's pride and their complacency. They're just letting a lot of things go. Uh, Paul says, you know, I hear that among you there's a, there's a young man who is living with his mother-in-law. Essentially, he's saying they're, they're engaging in sexual relations. He's sleeping with his mom-in-law, and you guys are just okay with that. Uh, there's a few other instances going on where Paul is just 
kind of li- listing a couple things that have been reported to him. But there's pride, there's complacency. Now, joined with these two matters is the issue of teachers who have questioned the credibility of Paul. And that's where the division comes in. There's a lot about division, but the main division is between them and Paul. There is division amongst themselves, but the main division stems from their uh, doubt of his apostolicity or his credibility as a teacher. So at the heart of so many of these matters, Paul is confronting their divisions or conflict between them and him. His credibility amongst the church has eroded, having been called into question by other teachers, likely within the church. Uh, Commentator Gordon Fee writes that this was initiated by a few, that while this was initiated by a few, this sentiment is infecting nearly the whole. Essentially, it started with a little bit of chatter, questioning the validity of Paul's teaching, and it just got around, and all of Corinth is now, his name has been soured. Now, the Corinthians have not listened to his previous teaching, hence his drawing of some clearer lines. So there's like examples of this. Uh, for example, he talks about like all these different lists of grievances and sins. He'll say like, I, I forbid you from eating with the sexually immoral, or he goes on to all these different things, brothers and sisters. It seems to indicate that he previously told them, hey, you need to deal with that. Like, that can't be tolerated. But now it's like, no, you're not just not confronting sin. You're letting it just be seen as okay, as just normal, as this is part of the way of the life for a Jesus follower. Now, they also have a clear misunderstanding of what it means to be spiritual or what we call people of the Spirit. They've done away with the physical believing that the spiritual is all that matters. Hence, there's a lot of disregard for the physical body in here. That's why there's a lot of sexual immorality, a lot of eating stuff, a lot of of things of that sort where Paul is trying to re-elevate the uh, glory of the physical, that we are not just spiritual beings, but we are flesh and spirit. We are uh, united. That when we die, Jesus does not just save our soul, he saves all of us, and you are a body too. They essentially believe that they've already arrived. And this is where uh, some scholars say they, they have an over-realized eschatology. They think the end has already come. They think they're already good. Hence, we can do whatever we want. So whatever we desire must be good because we've already arrived. And so the gentleman who is sleeping with his mother-in-law, it must be okay because they're on this side already. They've already been restored. There is this um, indulge in your appetites mantra going on. That you do you, whatever you want goes. So he's not so much teaching or refining their doctrine though here, but he's confronting and attacking their way of thinking. That's why he says a lot throughout here. He'll say, do you not know? Or if anyone thinks they are blank, actually blank. Uh, Paul is really going on the defense and actually the attack here. It's kind of an interesting, it's not the most gracious of his letters. And there's a lot of story, a lot of background behind this. So, all that to say, let's start through the passage this morning, and in the coming weeks, hopefully those details will shed some light for us as we understand more and more and dive more and more into what Paul wrote in what we call the first letter to the Corinthians. So, verse 1, 
Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. No one really knows. Just say it fast and people will think it's right. Um, So this is a standard greeting. Just like for us in letters, right? We write, dear so-and-so, comma, and then go from there. Ours is pretty simple. Them, they had, you say the writer, so Paul or Tyler. Then you say the addressee, so the Corinthians or to LifeBridge. And then you say, greetings. And there is this great greeting, and then there is a thanks or a prayer, sometimes both. Now Paul, it says here, he's called to be an apostle. He refers to himself as an apostle. Uh, this is new in for him to address this right away in the beginning of his letters. This is a big deal, and I think this is, there's a lot of little tiny indicators for us of like Paul is sort of like upping his resume or showing his credibility to be like, no, 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 remember who I am. He's, trying, he's not trying to be proud, but he is trying to remind them, hey, I'm not a false teacher. I'm not no one. God has been in this. God brought me to you. I've spent time with you. And so he's, that's what he's doing here. He's referring to his, uh, essentially his CV. He seems to be widely used term in the early church, this term apostle. Paul utilizes this in quite a few letters. So while we refer to the 12 mainly as the apostles, this word starts being attributed to other people in the church. Uh, you see that in 1 Thessalonians 2 and Romans 16. And yeah, this is Paul defending his ministry, but not by his own work. He's not saying, hey, I'm an apostle. He's saying, I was called to be an apostle. This is the work of God. And Sosthenes, we don't necessarily know who he is. It's a unique name. He could be in Acts 18. Not a big deal for the story right here, but it could be him. Him and Paul may have gotten beat up pretty badly if this is the same guy. Okay, verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. This word church, this is kind of a newer term, or not a newer term, this is a term that is utilized a lot in that culture. We just kind of adapted it. The word is ecclesia. It simply means a gathered people, sometimes around a higher ideology, like a political body. We see the same word in Acts 19, but you'll see the word is not the same word. It's It's translated differently. It's a pretty common word, but he says, the church of God that is in Corinth. This is interesting. One of the few times, I know it's weird semantics, the ordering, but for Corinth, you can see Paul trying to chip away at their pride in little ways like this. To the Thessalonians, he said to the church of Thessalonica in God. But to the Corinthians, he goes to the church of God that is in Corinth. And there's this reminder of, wait, who you are is rooted in who you are in God first. It's not you and then your identity in God is subservient to that. No, it's you are who you are because of who you are in God, and then you are Corinthians. And he kind of shifted that, and he goes forward from there, this being one of his earlier letters. He's, He's humbling them. He's reminding them of their place. But he's saying there's one church. Notice that too. To the church in Corinth. We know that there's many churches in Corinth. There's many house churches that have that Paul helped start. But they are still one. They are one together. To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. 
called to be saints together with all those who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So while deterring their pride still, they, they are special though. They are sanctified. Do we know this word sanctified? It's kind of a word that we don't typically use outside of the church. I mean, it's a word that Paul utilizes for Christian conversion. They've been set apart. God's made these people His own people. And not only that, he says they're called to be saints. Now, this can be kind of foreign to Protestantism, right? We don't typically utilize the saint language as much anymore since the Reformation, because the Reformation, we were like, anything Catholics do, let's do this way. And in light of that, we kind of get away from some things that were good. Um, no, we are all saints who are in Christ. We are to be saints. We are becoming them. And so he's saying, you are called to be saints. You are called to be set apart. And then he use, utilizes this term, theirs and ours. He says, both their Lord and ours. It's kind of a weird thing there, right? Like, what does that mean? Their God and ours. It sounds almost like he's saying they have their own God and then we have ours. But no, it's, it's kind of a weird Greek thing that doesn't translate well for us. But essentially, he's grouping them and helping them see that they are not their own people to just live and boast about their own life as a Corinthian church. They are together a part of something greater than themselves. Don't stand so tall. Don't think you are so great. You are with the global church. And so he's saying they're set apart. They're called to a new way of being human a renewed way of being human, and yet they still lack. I guess a question for us, as I, as I was reading through this, is can we experience, can our experiences with church community relate at all? Have we ever been a part of, uh, whether it be a small group or a group of believers or even our local church or denomination where we think and can kind of get this prideful boasting that we're better than this denomination or this church or this group of people? That's something that Paul is trying to deflate here. Gordon Fee, again, he writes, In the coming age that has already dawned, the Corinthians have a share with all the saints, fellow believers in every place who also call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is, who have put their trust in Him and pray to and worship Him. Keep going in verse 3. Paul then says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. There's two different words. Uh, grace first is the word charis in Greek. This essentially, this is um, God has bountifully and mercifully given access to himself, to us. That is grace. That there is no separation now. He is not withholding anything. It is fully available and accessible to you. That's why the message translates it says it is free and open access to God given by Jesus. And then peace, it's this word shalom, right? We've heard this word, it means well-being, this wholeness, this welfare. The key thing to notice here is that peace flows from grace. We can't have peace without grace. You know, during many of the protests of the last decade or so, right, you see those signs of no justice, no peace. 
you know, I would add, you know, peace, justice, similar, or justice, grace, similar. And in some ways, they are preaching gospel truth there in that regard. Uh, whether or not it's applied accurately, that's a different conversation. But that mantra, there is validity to that. That we cannot have peace with God and amongst ourselves unless we have experienced grace, access to God. And that grace affecting and overflowing into our relationships. So that's why he says grace and peace. Peace is something that flows from grace. It's from God the Father made effective and available through Jesus. Okay, four through nine. Let's take a look at this. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus. The question here is like, is Paul being sarcastic? Is this kind of a little dig? Like, hey, thank God that he had so much grace on you, a.k.a. you needed a lot of grace. Um, like, is that kind of like, <laughs> it's like, oh, wow, all that makeup on you looks, makes your face look so great. It's like, whoa, 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 why are you saying I needed so much makeup? Uh, like, <laughs> no, not a good analogy. Okay, anyways, but it's, it's essentially this little side little jab of like, hey, you needed a lot more grace, right? But I, I thank God for this. Literally, he, he thanks God for the source of what is troubling him. This is a unique way to handle conflict and people who are troubling us, in particular in the church. He's not upset with the gifts, the spiritual gifts that they have uh, obtained from God, but with the pride they are taking in them. So in giving thanks for them, Paul is redirecting their attention. So for them, they're like, we've arrived. We've got all these spiritual gifts, and that kind of comes up later in this letter, uh, that we have arrived in Christ. We are fully uh, restored. And so for Paul, he's reminding them, no, this is from God. This is of God. This is not your own doing. He's reminding them of the source. Now, how can we do this? How can we shift our thinking, even just on a regular basis, as we uh, confront conflict or, or conflict confronts, confronts us, right? Um, the thing in counseling in particular, and even just this last session, some of the things uh, our counselors talk us through is you know, see, searching for the evidences of God's grace, even in the midst. So you're looking for the little glimmers of light in the dark scenario. So, for example, uh, that what he's doing here with Corinth is, yeah, it's evident. Yeah, you guys are great at speaking in tongues or prophesying. Wow, you guys are tapping into the gifts of the Spirit is what is going on here later on. However, they're abusing it. And so he's reminding, okay, this is great that you do this, but what you're doing it for, your motives for it, or your uses of it, is where it's getting twisted. It's twisting good. And so we can do that even in our own relationships where, man, I, it was something that I had to learn and I'm still learning with uh, parenting my teenager or relating with my wife of when I feel like I've harmed them or they've harmed me, anything of that sort, that man seeing in counseling, they have you go, hey, I see this. I see this. I love this. I love, I can see that this matters to you. I love that this goodness, or you're aspiring 
to this goodness, but you are misseeking it in the wrong place, or it's misguided. Does that make sense? And so, even in that, that helps deflate the situation. That helps you see, even as you're relating with someone, whether it be a loved one or a friend or someone in the congregation or member of the community, you are trying to see the image of God evident in them. So find ways to see God's image in them in that moment. What that does also for you inward is realizing, hey, I've got to do this with myself, right? Otherwise, I'll beat up myself. Or I might be too prideful, right? I might think too highly of myself and be like, well, no, 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 that's not necessarily me. It's the image of God being restored in me. And so it humbles us, uh, and it might help you see the other person differently, the way God sees them. So that's how we can practically try and take that into perspective as Paul is doing this, trying to see the good still in Corinth, even though they've caused him much heartache, much problems. His credibility has been questioned. So, despite the difficulties, he's still grateful. Now, what about the people who frustrate us? Can we see those evidences of God's grace in their lives? That's the question we can ask. That's the endeavor we can seek to. And I encourage you not to just do that with your own intellect, uh, but by prayerfully seeking that through. And maybe with a pastor, an elder, a, a brother or sister in the faith, if that is something that hinders you. But seeing the evidence of God. Okay, keep going in verse 5. For in every way, he says, you know, I thank God. And he says, for in every way you have been enriched in him, in speech and knowledge of every kind. You've been enriched. Now this word speech, uh, he's referring to spiritual utterances. So these are some of the spiritual gifts, like knowledge, wisdom, tongues, and knowledge. This word is Gnostic, or Gnostis, um, or Gnos, sorry in uh, Greek. This is prophetic revelation. and Essentially, he's saying these gifts, you have been given many gifts that, they, that, again, these are literally the source of some of the problems that come up later on. <laughs> Keep going in verse 6. Just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you, this gospel of King Jesus, it's evidence in him, in them, that God confirmed their place through the gifts of the Spirit. Sometimes we wonder, maybe to a fault, right? We may question, like, man, I don't know about that person, right? We start looking for the speck in their eyes, right? We start wondering, what's going on? Are they really? We go through those questions, and you're like, wait, I can't go there. But no, God's confirmed their place through the gifts of the Spirit. And just as he is affirming to them in Corinth, like, hey, I can see God among you, he's almost reminding them, hey, just as I can see that in you, like, hopefully you can see that in me, in Paul, right? That as they're questioning his teaching, his validity as, a, as an authority in the local church, he's reminding them, see that God's evidence is amongst their lives or, or manifest through their lives. Keep going, verse 7, he says, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift 
as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus. You're not missing anything. Gordon Fee says that uh, gifts are concrete expressions of God's gracious activity in God's people. The spiritual gifts, they're concrete expressions of God's gracious activity in God's people. And what's the significance there at the end where he says the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, this, uh, the, the term we use in theology is eschatology or eschatological emphasis. It has to do with the end of all things, of consummation. Well, let's keep going because it's going to come up a little bit more. He's going to keep going with this. Paul says in verse 8, he says, He will also strengthen you to the end so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, referring to the end. So he says, God who saves you will also sustain you. He who called you will sustain you. What's the reason behind that? You will be without fault. So that you will be without fault. You will be like Jesus. Uh, the thing we can get so caught up in is we, we relate initially to God by grace and then the rest of our lives, we go the rest of our lives relating to Him based on our works. And our works do matter, but that is not what maintains our place before God, nor does it achieve our holiness on its own. It is grace-motivated works. Grace is the gas in the tank. Or if you've got an EV, the, the battery juice. I don't even know what that is, uh, what that illustration is. But we don't have EVs here, huh? We're in, we're in the country. I'm joking. Sorry. Sorry, that's not funny. Uh, <laughs> uh, but no, so that is the fuel in the tank for you. That is our battery charge. It is grace what sustains us. It will change and continue to sustain us. When? Till the day of our Lord. He's referring to this final judgment. That on that day, we will be blameless. We will be without fault for Jesus. Just as the Corinthians will. Why? Because He strengthens them. It is in His works, not ours. But He's saying this. He's prefacing this very real, long, hard letter that he's about to have a really hard talk with them and get through and just do surgery on their way of life, on their thinking, on everything. But up front, he's throwing this at them and saying, you will be blameless despite your very real present faults. Is that good news for us? those of us maybe aware of our present real faults personally or in your household or your community or, or here or wherever it may be or in the world, I think that's good news for us. That despite the very real obstacles, faults, just chaos in our own lives and in the world and anywhere in between, God will make us blameless. Again, uh, if you can't tell, I'm mainly using Gordon Fee, this commentator. Uh, he writes, Christ's resurrection marks the turning of the ages. The subsequent gift of the eschatolo eschatological spirit is certain evidence that the end has begun. But the fact that we still live in bodies subject to decay, and that there is yet a future perusia of the Lord or coming of the Lord, 
consummation, that's what that word means, uh, with the subsequent resurrection from the dead is also clear evidence that what has begun has not yet been fully brought to confirmation. This is that already not yet theology that we talk about, this framework. We live in the age in between. We have been saved, but we are still being saved. We have been redeemed, but we and the world are still being redeemed. So although they have not yet arrived yet, although the Corinthians have not yet arrived yet, Paul is telling them, you have reason to be confident and to have hope. Why? Verse 9, the beginning, right there, the last verse of the intro. Why do they have reason to be confident, to have hope? Is it because of them? Because of their, their gifts? How awesome they are? No, it's God is faithful. God is faithful. Not us, God is. Regardless of our faith, the degree, whether it's charged or about to die, or anywhere in between, what matters is that God is faithful. By Him, you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. There is very real evidence of this in the Corinthians now. He reiterates the call. He says, you know, you were called again. He's framing this whole introduction that they have been called into this fellowship with Jesus. Again, redirecting their attention. It's about God. It's based on God. It's for God. Taking them away, their affection or their attention and affection on themselves and reorienting them towards God. Now this word fellowship, uh, it means community, sometimes business partnership, even an intimate acquaintance. And it, it, it indicates this both positional, that we are in relation with God, but it's this relational component. That it is something that is not just casual, where we're just sitting around a table or meeting someone for coffee, but no, we are intimately bound and woven in with God. And thus, the people of God. So how does this passage speak to the lives of Jesus' followers today? I've got just two statements. Followers of Jesus can rest assured that God is faithful despite their floundering faith. We can rest assured that God is faithful despite our floundering faith. So though we may waver and wander in our lives, uh, experiencing spiritual droughts throughout the journey as Jesus followers, our God is faithful. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but I hear in Christian circles sometimes, that uh, if I'm struggling or having a dark season or something like that, uh, you could just kind of hear the advice of, you just got to have more faith. Um, which I'd love to know where that knob is on my body, where I can just turn up the faith, or, you know, what surgery it is that someone can cut me open and be like, oh, just pump in some more faith. Good. Okay. That's not how it works. That's not how God intended it to be. I've shared this quote with us before, but again, I think it's relevant in uh, Timothy Keller's book, The Reason for God. He speaks of this. He says, it's not the strength of your faith, 
but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. We could be the most prideful, confident person in the world, man. We are so secure in ourselves, but if it's in ourselves, it is inferior to the person who doubts every moment of every day whether or not they are in Christ, but they, are, they, they have a little bit of faith, they believe. They're following and failing and failing and failing, but following. So that idea, I, I encourage us not to use that advice with someone, just have more faith. No, life, life's hard, and it can really suck sometimes. Saying have more faith, I don't know about you, but it's never been encouraging to me. If anything, I'm like, I don't want to get advice from you ever again, because I don't think that's in the scriptures. <laughs> that sounds like self-help, pop psychology, not the gospel. The gospel is despite how I feel, God is faithful. That's the good news. Is this good news for you this morning? That no matter where you're at right now with God, with Jesus, with His people, with your community, with your family, with whatever, where you're wondering where He is or if He's good or if He sees you, is that good news to know that, yes, He is. Because even when I have those doubts, man, we can be so afraid and the church can be it can be a scary place to say, man, I just am not believing God this week. Or I don't even care about Him this week, right? But if anything, we should be able to own that. The Psalms are a lot of that. Where are you, God? Where are you? I don't see you. I'm doubting you. My enemies encircle me. It's not, it's not about whether or not our faith is fully charged, or just on the last 1%. It's on the faithfulness of Jesus. And that's where the second uh, takeaway for us is our, our relationship with God is not dependent on our faithful obedience, but on the faithfulness of God, demonstrated in the faithful obedience of Jesus. It's not about our faithfulness. It's about Jesus's. God's faithfulness to himself and to his people and to his creation demonstrated at that apex moment Jesus the crux the turning point the inauguration of the new age where things are being made new so though doubts about God and fears of humanity will creep into your minds and hearts we can be confident that what matters most is that God is faithful in one of his letters to someone he developed, an apprentice, Timothy, the Apostle Paul quoted Jesus to him, stating, If we are faithless, faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's pray. I'll be reading a prayer that's on the screen. Steadfast God. You have enriched and enlightened us by the revelation of your eternal Christ. Comfort us in our mortality and strengthen us to walk the path of your desire. 
so that by word and deed we may manifest the gracious news of your faithfulness and love. God, we, we ask in particular, God, for those of us who our faith may be wavering or virtually non-existent at this point, whatever it may be, God, redirect our attention and our affection not to our own position in life, uh, not to our own uh, moral goodness or lack thereof, uh, to the state of our life and what's going on. God, redirect our attention as Paul did to the Corinthians. Godward. Help us look upward, not inward and outward. May we, in looking Godward, be able to look inward and outward through the lens of the gospel, seeing your faithfulness, seeing manifestations of of your present spirit, of evidences of your grace in and amongst us. But God, please, please give us attention and affection towards you. And regardless, may we know with our intellectual faculties that, God, that you are good. Regardless of how I feel, may we be able to hold on to that. May we encourage one another in these truths and these realities as a local church, as a local manifestation of your body. Uh, We love you, God. We thank you. We praise you. We pray in the name of Jesus through the power of your spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.